Hello and welcome to Making Media Now, a filmmaker's collaborative podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. Joining me on this episode is writer, filmmaker, and professor Michelle Meek. In April, Michelle's latest book, Consent Culture and Teen Films, was published. Michelle has written several other books, including Independent Female Filmmakers and The Mastermind Failure Club. Michelle has also directed numerous award-winning short films and worked as an associate producer on the documentary feature Salvage, which premiered at the South by Southwest Film Festival. She currently has several creative projects in the works, including a short film called Bay Creek Tennis Camp, a feature screenplay, Cruisin', and a documentary, The Impermanence of Everything. She is a tenure-track assistant professor in the Communication Studies Department at Bridgewater State University in Massachusetts, where she teaches filmmaking, screenwriting, film studies, digital media, and gender studies. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please do follow, leave a review, and share. Now on to my conversation with Michelle Meek. Hello, Michelle Meek. Welcome to Making Media Now. Hi, thanks for having me. I should say welcome back because you did join us a few years ago. It's head spinning how quickly time goes. But yeah, I was oh, no. I was I was looking back at our prior conversation and that was way back in 2021. Oh. So it's good, good to be <laughs> right. speaking you with you again. And we're, you know, we're we're not just catching up, but we have a uh, good reason to be catching up because just a few weeks back you did uh, announce the publication of a book called Consent Culture in Teen Films. And so congratulations on that. Uh, I know we spoke a little bit about that book when we spoke uh, the last time, Uh, but bring our listeners up to speed around what the uh, what the the thesis of the book is and and maybe what the impetus of the book was combining your uh, your insights and your thoughts as a filmmaker and a professor. I'd be interested in hearing that story. The main idea that I'm sort of expanding on in the book is that. Although uh, contemporary films that are made in what I would call consent culture, um, those more contemporary films do take consent into account. They also tend to expose how complicated consent is in practice um, and how our affirmative consent, you know, yes means yes discourse really um, is very heteronormative and um, sort of cis focused. So then I look at that through the lens of teen films, essentially, to kind of examine how adolescents are supposedly navigating these uh, interactions in those kinds of films. So, I mean, this has been a long process to get to the point of of publishing the book. I mean, working on a peer-reviewed book takes many years, even not just the writing, but just the peer review process is very lengthy. Um, but I, so I really started working on the ideas in the book many years ago, honestly, before me too, um, I was looking at consent and how it operated in, in film and 
books and I was thinking about sort of puzzling consent situations. And, um, and then, you know, after me too, I was, I was really kind of focused more on, okay, well, this is great. We're really getting to an era where there's kind of a mainstream attention on consent, Mm -hmm. which I think in general, we can all agree consent is a good idea in, in theory for sure. Um, I think what I started to notice as I was watching films that were kind of coming out post me too, was that although consent was prioritized, it was also clear that affirmative consent or yes means yes, didn't solve all the problems that we were hoping it would, or maybe that we, you know, sort of in theory kind of think it should. Um, and, and so, you know, that's really what I started to look at, um, in the book and how these films kind of expose those flaws in the affirmative mm-hmm. consent discourse. Can you mark a, um, a beginning maybe of, uh, evolution in filmmaking or storytelling, you know, in films that are geared toward a younger audience where issues of consent first started to, um, make themselves apparent? I mean, I like to say that every depiction of sex is a depiction of consent, too, actually. Mm -hmm. And so in that regard, you know, as long as we've been and sex was pretty much in the movies from the very beginning um, or ideas around sex. um, You know, one of the first movies that I talk about, the earliest movies, I should say, I talk about in the book is a book uh, directed, co-directed by Cleo Madsen, Madison, who was uh, a silent filmmaker. And it's a short film about a girl who has um, premarital intercourse. And we know that because she ends up pregnant. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, so, and then what happens as a result of that? And it's actually quite fascinating that such an early film not only tackled that kind of topic, but presented it in a way where she has her happy ending. Actually, in the end, she ends up, it causes all sorts of problems. Her brother wants her to marry somebody else and she doesn't want to marry him because he's very old and she's not interested in him. Um, but then, you know, she ends up kind of fighting back and resisting the marriage and, and ultimately ends up with her, her love interest and the father of her child, obviously a very, in some ways, heteronormative story. Um, but it still was kind of very transgressive for the era to Mm -hmm. depict a girl, um, going outside the bounds of what was expected and then actually being rewarded really in the end. And and that was a silent film. Yeah, I know it's called her defiance. Um, you can see it, I think on Netflix, um, if it's still there, that's where I watched it, but, um, it's very surprising to see some of the silent films really address topics like that. Uh, Yeah, I would imagine. And, and, and for the, um, in a more contemporary vein, I could have the dates wrong on this or, or even the, the time frame incorrect, but it feels to me like, uh, around the time that me too became part of the vernacular, uh, we're talking around the last five or 10 years, uh, five to seven years, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and so therefore, it typically takes art that's reflective of culture a little, you know, a little time to catch up. What, what's been your analysis and your observation of, say, youth oriented films that have come out in the last decade around these uh, around these topics of consent? Or mm-hmm. do you feel like they're reflective of the tide in the way it's moving within the culture at large, 
Uh, or do you feel like uh, it still kind of exists in its in, in its own area? I mean, you know, the thing that's interesting is that the idea of consent culture really came about as a response to rape culture, which is the idea that um, sexual assault or rape is normalized in our interactions and larger society are sort of condoned um, in a in countless sort of tacit and maybe not so tacit ways. Um, and consent culture was kind of positioned as the antidote to that. You know, I think that's one of the things that's interesting is that the way films, there's no doubt that there's a delay in sort of responding, films responding. That said, it was pretty clear quite quickly that youth films better get on board with consent mm -hmm. right away. Okay. So, for example, if you look at a film like Good Boys, which came out in 2019, you know, the the original script didn't have any discussion of consent in it. Um, but when the film came out, Me Too was to, went viral, at least in like 2017. Right. So um, when the film came out in 2019, they had written consent into the story, essentially. So I, and I, I think it's interesting, but these things coexist. Right. Because the story of Good Boys is really one of teenage boys who want to spy on a neighbor so that a uh, girl neighbor, you know, older neighbor who wants because they want to learn about, you know, sex and, and, and romance. And so there's sort of non-consent baked into that plot okay. idea. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, the film is very explicit with the boys knowing about consent um, when one of the boys has a kiss with one of the girls, like there's very explicit consent given in the, in, in that scene and in numerous scenes actually throughout the film. So, you know, it, it, these, there's the coexistence of like, you know, there's still like this plot of wanting to uh, kind of take advantage of someone or, you know, do something against their consent, but at the same time, explicit consent for those interactions. And what about instances where consent would almost be anachronistic in the sense that, you know, the the the, the time setting of the film uh, might be, you know, maybe the film was made in 2020 or 2022 or 2023, but the era depicted in the film is uh, far predates the Me Too era. Uh, have you seen any instances of that? And 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 as a filmmaker, what's your take on sort of. Um, you know, that revisionist history uh, where you're taking contemporary values and you're plugging them into, you know, a, a story that uh, isn't meant to take place in a contemporary setting. I think that certainly can happen to some extent, but, you know, any depiction is not really representing reality. <laughs> so I guess, it, you know, we're always putting our sort of contemporary sensibility and values onto any depiction that's coming out now. You know, think about the types of stories that have been written about something like slavery or, you know, uh, different kinds of women's rights or abortion over time. Like, uh, you know, I think there's some, that's where you really kind of can take the temperature of where we're at. <laughs> <laughs> to some extent. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about a, a, a film like in the eighties with dirty dancing, where they depicted abortion. Um, and in, on the one hand, it was seen as like, we don't want to go back to those days where abortion is illegal, for example. Right. Um, but it also was seen as something that, that, that only someone who sort of 
more sexually active or promiscuous got themselves into. And it also made it look very um, physically dangerous and distressing and et cetera, which, um, you know, if you go a couple of years before that, you have fast times at Ridgemont High where, you know, the main character gets pregnant um, gets an abortion and it's kind of no big deal. And when I've shown that film to students, they're shocked. They're shocked that it's kind of depicted as a way where she's physically not, you know, sort of traumatized that she kind of just goes on with her life um, emotionally. You know, I mean, it's, it's not seen as like the end. Yeah, um, And she's not shunned either. And she's not shunned. Right. She just, right. she goes, she tries to, you know, she, she talks to us, uh, talks to the guy, tries to get him to pay half. He bails out, you know, and she just gets it done. And it's like, she moves on, you know? Um, and then we had like the absence of that narrative in youth films for decades, really, where, you know, the only time it was mentioned was really kind of in the form of a, a Juno or something like that, where it was brought up only to be dismissed as a, as not the, the right option. Um, and you know, in the last couple of years, it's come back sort of in full force. We had three abortion teen movies within a short span of time. We had plan B, um, we had unpregnant and we had, uh, never rarely, sometimes always. And mm -hmm. so to have three movies within like kind of a year of each other, all that depicted, youth, uh, you know, kind of with the obstacles that they were experiencing getting an abortion, it said something about our time. So, you know, it, that's just, that's just the reality. But I think that sometimes there are films that kind of are set back in time and it's really not necessarily that representative of then, but it's really more representative of now. Yeah. It's always interesting to figure out, okay, so where is this balance? Is it art? Is art influencing the culture or is culture influencing the art? And it feels like it's, you know, you got to take it on a case by case basis. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of always both, I think, to some extent. I mean, there's yeah. no doubt that we're influenced by the movies. I know as a youth, I was absolutely influenced by the movies. That said, I was not a blank slate to be written on. Mm -hmm. And I had opinions about things that I saw and I would, I could watch something and think that's not right. Or I don't want to do that. Or, you know, that kind of thing. So we're, we're always responding to the media that we're watching. And then we're shifting those narratives in our interactions and saying like, I'm going to, carve out a new path based on my values or beliefs. Um, and so that's how the culture sort of starts to change. And, um, and then movies change as a result too. Uh, you know, I kind of think with, with youth movies, there's this interesting aspect where because adults are making them, um, so they're about youth, but they're really kind of more about adults or what adults think of youth or think of their own youth maybe. So there, I kind of almost think there's a delay in, in how youth representations are in the movies because it's, you know, most filmmakers are probably in their like thirties, forties, fifties, sixties. Right. So, and they're making movies about people who are in their teens or, mm -hmm. you know, preteens or in their adolescence. And, and, Sometimes they do work to kind of make that as authentic as possible, but sometimes they're really writing more about what they sort of experienced or what resonated for them as a youth. And that's not the same thing as what's resonating for youth today. Yeah, that's an interesting point you bring up. I was I, I was thinking about the uh, HBO series Euphoria, uh, which um, uh, you know, certainly caused a a, a buzz uh, when it when it first aired uh, in its depiction of teen sexuality. Uh, it's very artfully made, uh, but, but you know the 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 
creator of the of you of euphoria is in his late 30s early 40s uh most of the well all of the actors are at least 21 you know right. and 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 older uh and so you do sometimes wonder whether you know are these are these stories sort of avenues for the the writers and the and the uh, the filmmakers uh to present kind of lessons learned through their through their own life or or is it more like reportage mhm i mean there's i think there's a lot of aspects to it and ultimately people make, you know, writers and directors and producers make content based on what's going to sell. Um, And, you know, there's no doubt that sex has always sold. And there is also, um, you know, the idea of, of youth and sexuality has always been kind of attractive to audiences, really. I mean, and I think that's one of the reasons why the child pornography, you know, laws came about in order to sort of protect against that exploitation. Um, But now we have shows like that where, you know, we might see explicit situations, but they're not actually youth. Um, I think that one of the things that's troubling to me about those kinds of situations is that it gives us a false idea of what it actually looks like for youth to be in these kinds of situations to Mm -hmm. a large extent. You know, one of the examples I use in the book is the film diary of a teenage girl, which is, I I love that movie so much. Um, But at the same time, it's depicting a a young girl with an older man, an adult man who's in his like late thirties. And it shows the, the sort of problematic aspects of that relationship it's set in the past, which I think gives it a little bit more of a past. Like, I think that would be a hard movie to set in the present moment. Um, It's also autobiographical, which gives it a different layer of testimony. But ultimately, one of the things that's hard about the film to kind of wrap your head around is that it's really the the girl who's supposed to be 15 is played by someone in their 20s. So kind of like you said, um, you know, when we watch that film, we might get the feeling that that she has a lot of agency and control in the situation and and not I'm not disavowing that because I do think there's something to that and I love the film for tackling the intricacies of that um but I also think we're not really seeing what it looks like for a 15 year old girl to be in that situation and we might feel differently about it if we were yeah that character type um well, it's not ubiquitous. It, it, there are variations of it throughout television and, and, and film. And um, I believe, you know, it would be accurate to call that character sort of sex positive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's often communicated that even though this is there's an age disparity and a life experience disparity, the female protagonist, the sex positive female protagonist is really in control of this, which I wonder whether that's a message that um, uh, ultimately undermines, you know, any notions of of consent when you know, tables are turned or when, you know, the, the characters um, either lack of experience or strength, you know, uh, comes to comes to the fruition in the in the story. So I think that's one of the things that really exposes how gendered the affirmative consent discourse tends to be because there are a lot of movies that have kind of occurred in the more contemporary era 
that position girls in the driver's seat of the relationship, which, you know, in many ways feels like a net gain for sure. You know, it feels like, okay, finally, we're seeing girls who have desire, who have curiosity, who take initiative and, and all of that. Um, yet at the same time, it's almost like, we can't get ourselves out of this um, dichotomy of someone being the aggressor and someone being kind of like, not the victim so much, but the, the prey or something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And so these, a lot of these films kind of switch the roles where the girl becomes kind of the driver and doesn't, they don't always get consent from their male partners. Um, And that feels to me like, a, it's exposing how affirmative consent is about getting consent from girls and not the other way around. Um, B, it's also sort of showing that we have this misconception that boys or men uh, or both are always ready to consent without even needing to be asked, which is not true. And, and C, you know, it's, it's, I think really exposes that we need to kind of be more explicit with how we're thinking and talking about consent so that we don't get ourselves into this idea of it's like this simple switch and then problem solved because that's not really enough. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's interesting that you make the distinction between um, boys and girls, males and females, you, you know, in, in this context uh, because oftentimes consent is equated with permission given. And that seems like that's that's sort of one sided uh, where where whereas in order for permission to be given, somebody has to be seeking that permission. And so, you know, it, where in film or popular culture, you know, do um, younger people, I guess, you know, even begin to see instances where there is ambiguity around that, you know, just because the character is is a young adolescent male doesn't necessarily mean that the first thing he's he's looking for all the time is to have sex. Right. I mean, this, these ideas have been perpetuated for so long, I think, that it's just hard for us to get out of those patterns. Um, you know, when we had decades of years of, of presenting uh, boys and men as sort of always ready for sex sure. that 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 idea just sort of persists from a storytelling standpoint the issue of consent is uh, it's a little bit more nuanced than just someone saying okay yes you know you have my permission <laughs> so in other words right. you know i'm this entity or the character is this entity that's just waiting to be acted upon Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, the thing is that, you know, we get ourselves in a, a little bit of a confusing territory, too, because consent is really um, both performative and subjective. And by that, I mean that it's both what we say and do, but mm-hmm. it's also how we think and feel. And so there can even be discrepancies with someone saying yes and feeling no or vice versa. And that complicates things. Um, And so we'll see situations in movies that kind of expose those realities, those Mm -hmm. confusing realities. And I think that can really um, highlight the complexities that we often don't talk about. You know, for example, there's a film, Alex Strangelove, about a boy who's kind of coming to terms with his own same sex desire. And, um, but he has a girlfriend at the beginning of the story who he really likes, actually. I mean, he doesn't have sexual desire for her, but they have a good relationship and they love each other, actually. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and the, the problem is that Alex sort of forces himself into these sexual situations, like to the point of intercourse where, you know, he clearly has no desire. And so this, you know, both of them explicitly consent in terms of like, you know, it's, it, they have both sort of said yes to this. Um, but at the same time, it's pretty clear that he doesn't want it and she doesn't know that he doesn't want it. And so for both of them, it ends up being a very disappointing and kind of unpleasant encounter. And so, uh, you know, that's, I think, a, a perfect example of how, you know, it can be more complicated than just, oh, I said, yes, that means everything is is perfect and there's no problems. Yeah. Do you, what's your take on um, how this topic is dealt with? Um, if there's a disparity between female filmmakers and male filmmakers, not to make, you know, broad generalizations, but, you know, if you, if you can share whether you uncovered any, any, any trends or any patterns uh, along those lines. I definitely think that as more women directors and writers have kind of gotten the chance to make work that they've put more girls in the driver's seat of these kinds of films and, mm -hmm. you know, centered the story around them and their, their desires again, like I said, which is a good thing. Um, but some of the times it's, it's sort of exposing that, that, that doesn't mean that there's consent or the, the boys aren't, the, the girls aren't necessarily obtaining consent from the boys. So, you know, films like blockers, was a woman director to the to-do list also was another one sort of in that vein, which was also a female director. And so, I mean, in many ways, you know, I enjoy all these films, I have to say, like I really do. And, um, but that doesn't mean that I don't look at them critically at the same time and think about what are they actually saying about consent? And, you know, these ideas are kind of nuanced and it's hard, I know as a filmmaker too, to <laughs> convey nuance in a film. Right. right? And so um, I, I love some of the presentations in, in these, both of those films where they do get at some of these complexities. Um, and I think that's really, you know, that's one of the advantages I think of getting more perspectives and making film. We're also starting to see a lot more diversity in directors. And so we're seeing, you know, films where, um, black youth are the center of the story or Asian American uh, youth, you know? And so that's, that's long in long overdue. Yep. Um, and so I think that it, it does expand kind of what we're seeing and how we feel about it. What's your, what's your take on how these topics are dealt with uh, say on episodic television uh, versus, versus films. Uh, does episodic television open up certain storytelling uh, opportunities that maybe a 90 minute or two hour film uh, would be more challenged to address? Yeah, I think that episodic television has kind of a couple of advantages um, over films. One, I think they can, they can take more risks mm -hmm. because um, you know, when you're putting a film to market, especially a mainstream film, it's just so expensive and you can't, you have to know there's going to be a return on investment and that's only getting harder in many ways, I think. Um, right. so, you know, the television can kind of take more risks. I also think that they can find more audiences 
in television than they can with a film. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that the teen film genre is still a very robust and healthy genre. I mean, some of the most popular movies on streaming have been teen films in the last couple of years, actually, because they're very popular with youth and adults. Um, And so they have kind of a big market. Um, But I think that, you know, so does television about youth as well. And so, you know, and I know from having watched some of those programs with my kids too, you know, there it, it, it crossed that we're both interested in the storylines and it offers us chance to have conversations about those things. So I think they can be a little bit more of the moment and be responding. The other thing I've noticed that I love is that we're getting to see more international programming through yep. um, episodic television or programming, you know, like seeing a series like sex education or heartbreak high that are from other countries. I mean, that is just thing when I was growing up ever happened. Like we did not get shows that were that widely known, um, that were from another country that we all kind of, I don't know, just that I think. Yeah. I mean, occasionally if you know, via, via PBS, you would see some BBC. Right. Right. That was about it. Right. Yeah. It wouldn't be something that like, you know, as sex education, I mean, a lot of people have watched that show. Right. And so there's been numerous seasons. And um, so I think that also is opening our eyes to how, how things are viewed outside of American culture. And sometimes, you know, the U S is slow to the, the game, you know, we've had in, in Europe, there were the first queer films, you know, they've kind of, uh, tackled trans youth earlier than we have. So I think that the U S is not actually on the cutting edge often of those kinds of ideas. And so getting access to international shows Mm -hmm. and movies, I think can change that too. So when you're putting together a book, a book such as yours, which again, the title is consent culture and teen films, um, how do you make a decision around how much of this book is going to sort of be scholarship and and reportage and where and when, uh, you know, do you begin to assert kind of a perspective and, you know, and an opinion, so to speak, on the direction of of the story you're telling? Well, whenever you're writing scholarly work, you're always thinking about what is your intervention? You know, so it's it, how know, are you defining intervention? So it's, it's how, how are you trying to shift the conversation? What okay. is it that you're trying to say that changes how other people think about or other scholars think about this and other people think about this subject? So, you know, there, there's always a combination of looking at what's been already said, right? Because we're not writing this or thinking these thoughts in a vacuum. We're, we're thinking them because they're building upon a lot of the other things that we've read and, and learned. And so, you know, working with that and then thinking about, okay, knowing that and, and seeing this, these films. So that's kind of like a close reading almost of, of some of these moments in the film, Um, you're putting those, that existing scholarship, that close reading together, and then you're kind of making your intervention into kind of what you want to say. And, um, so it was very much a combination of those. I mean, I, I feel like I have a much more journalistic style of writing than many scholars. And I think this topic has crossover appeal to just anyone, honestly, who enjoys teen movies, um, or is interested in consent and sex and films. So I tried my best as I was writing it to make it 
to not assume prior knowledge on any particular scholarly idea so that I really provide the foundation in each chapter for what ideas I'm referencing so that you can be caught up to speed and actually learn something about these things. Um, and then, you know, kind of form your own opinion as I'm, as I'm sharing mine with whether you, you agree or you have different thoughts or whatever, you know, um, and that's fine. So you might get ideas of other movies like, oh yeah. And I saw this and that also did this, you know? Um, and, and so I think it can be generative in that way. And as a, as a professor who is, you know, exposed to, um, uh, students and you know, college students, where are your students feeling like issues of, of, of consent are present in the pop culture that they're consuming, whether it's, you know, film, television, uh, social media, because, you know, as we well know, social media, particularly the uh, the image driven social media, whether it's TikTok or Instagram, uh, it's 30 second storytelling. But there are stories being told most definitely, you know, in those increments. Um is consent something that they're even aware of consciously? Uh, and is it sort of an uh, an element that they look for when they're, you know, evaluating uh, a piece of content, whether it be a film or, or uh, some other piece of pop culture? I've taught a class for several semesters called Sexual Consent and Violence in Film. And so through that class, I've talked to students a lot about how films are depicting these kinds of situations. Um, and we do do some youth films in those classes, not only though. Um, but I will say that in general, I think that there's just way more awareness about consent as a necessary ingredient to, a, a healthy sexual interaction. That said, I think that, um, people don't always, and my students are kind of included in this, recognize the, the, complexities are the nuances of that, you know? And so like one example is a film like the kissing booth where, um, you know, the main character is, has a crush on her, her best friend's brother. And, um, apparently we don't know at the beginning, but he also has a crush on her and kind of, uh, decides to like make it so that no other boy will ever ask her out because he's, he's told them to stay away from her. And, and then he, he, he kind of is very controlling and possessive and um, he's constantly getting into physical fights with other boys. And so he's aggressive. Um, and, you know, when I've shown clips of that film in class, I've actually been surprised that some students will come to his defense. <laughs> um, and because they kind of grew up watching that film and thinking, you know, how attractive of a character he is or, you know, and, and so they've kind of been sold a story of it's okay that he's behaving in this way because he really loves her. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a scene where he follows her. She, she runs, it's, I'll keep it brief, but he runs, she runs off. He follows her, tries to get her to go in his car and he slams his hand down on the car so hard and says, get in the car bell. And she sort of jumps um, and is clearly afraid. And then he says, please, and so she gets in the car and then they're driving and she asks to be taken home. And, and then at some point she says, this isn't the way home. And he's taking her to his favorite like lookout spot. So and then that's where they first have sex. And so the fact that she she does clearly consent in that moment and she does have a, 
a, you know, desire for him. There's no doubt in the story. So it's, I'm not trying to say that it's assault, but the way that it came about where he was controlling the fact that no other boy would even ask her out. Um, and he eliminated all of his competition and he sort of tricked her. And I just think there's, there's more to read into that about relationships and, and how, you know, how we interact with each other and consent isn't just the moment of like, the final moment of saying yes, like it has to be part of the relationship in a larger way. Yeah. And a lot of it, I mean, at least in that, in that story that you're uh, just were relaying is around what were the pre-existing expectations around behavior and roles, et cetera. So as a, you know, as, a, as someone who also appreciates the nuance of filmmaking and, and storytelling, you know, there's that line between, is this, is this piece of art a representation of the world as it is or the world as we wish it could be or the world as it could be? And, you know, sometimes a filmmaker will tell, will depict a very um, unsavory character confident that the audience is going to make the right observations. So it's, you know, it's um, pretty dicey stew sometimes, no? Oh, absolutely. I think so. I mean, I I admire films that really tackle some of those nuances, you know, um, more explicitly like a film like diary of a teenage girl. Um, I think in the kissing booth, it's, you know, that was actually written by a teenage girl. Um, it was written as a book and then it was later adapted into a movie. And so, you know, there's something very kind of traditional about that film. It's almost like, you know, when you've absorbed certain stories in mass culture and then you produce a story in that vein, I think um, that's kind of what the kissing booth feels like to me, where it's not pushing in any direction where it's trying to do something new or different. You know, I think a film like Lady Bird, um, it, it is an example of, of a filmmaker who's really trying to push a little bit outside of just the same old story. And not surprisingly, the depictions there are, are way more interesting and I think nuanced in, in ways that are, are compelling and, and um, worth further exploration. I mean, The Kissing Booth more feels unfortunate in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, I just think it's perpetuating certain stereotypes about boys or men being controlling and dominant in, in, and girls sort of wanting that and needing that for their Mm -hmm. own protection. Um, and I, I just think that that's not a model we want need to stick with. Not to say that girls need to be dominant and domineering. I'm not saying we're switching, but you know, let's get to a point where there's more mutual exploration. And and if we're showing uh, ambiguities in in relationships, like she does in in Greta Gerwig does in Ladybird, let's really tackle that ambiguity head on and make it clear that that's supposed to be ambiguous. Yeah. And I thought another another recent film that I thought really um, handled the, this ambiguity pretty deftly was Women Talking, you know, geared toward an older audience. Um, and they almost had the um, the benefit, so to speak, the characters of, of being in a very enclosed society. But but dealing with an issue uh, of obviously an imbalance of power. But there's not uniformity 
among the female characters around mm-hmm. what that means, what that means for them and how it's reflective of, you know, them as individuals and the and the uh, sort of microcosm that they're part of. That film was so incredible. And, you know, I have to say, when I first saw it, I actually didn't love it. And I was like, I don't get it. Of course they need to leave. Like, what is the problem? Why are they even discussing this? And then I realized, you know, but it haunted me. It haunted me that movie so much. And I realized in it's haunting me how good it really was. And um, I ended up writing a piece about it for Ms because I really felt like it was demonstrating kind of how we exist in a society where there is so much violence against women and trans people. We can't agree, like you said, on how to, how to handle that. Or, you know, we don't leave a <laughs> B and we don't can't agree on how to handle it. And which I, which that- I think really just, it's a, a tip of the hat to the intelligence of the audience and, and an acknowledgement totally. that, you know, this is not an after school special. We're not going to yeah. pretend to wrap this up in a nice little bow in in 90 minutes. You're so right. I mean, that that's one of the marks of a truly great film, honestly. I mean, I can't believe that she didn't get a best director nomination for that. Um, because she got it best really, original screenplay or adapted was, screenplay. Yes, yes. It was um Sarah Pauly. He was, it was nominated for best picture and it won for best screenplay. I always say the best movies are the best screenplay winners. Same thing was true with promising young woman, which did not win best picture or best director, but won for best screenplay. (laughs) But you know, yeah, that film was giving the audience a lot of credit to be able to process the meaning. And that was what made it so great. I think that it really became a metaphor for so many other ideas. And it, it talk about generative, really. I mean, it was just made you think and think and think. I'm still thinking about it. <laughs> you know, are, are you plugged into or are you a fan of the sort of the um, the superhero universe, which is just ubiquitous in the films, whether it's Marvel or DC? And I'm curious, I personally am not a huge fan. If I was like, you know, a 12 year old boy, I probably would be. I'm in fact, I know I would be at that at that point. <laughs> But I'm curious as to, uh, you know, if you're if you're plugged into that trend and also your thoughts on what are the what's what are the depictions of the gender roles in in those in the superhero universe? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sort of like halfway plugged in only because they're not it's not a genre I have a lot of interest in, uh-huh. but I have watched a number of them because, you know, my kids have watched them and they're And they are so ubiquitous. So even if you were trying to avoid them, it would be awfully hard. But, you know, a lot of those stories to me seem so predictable. Like, um, what was it? The one that Scarlett Johansson was in that we got on, we we ordered right when it came out. And I just. Is she Black Widow? I don't know. Yes, Black Widow. Right. Okay, great. I just, I felt like. God, this could be so much better. Honestly, like I joke, uh, but I don't know if it's really a joke anymore, but like, these are the kinds of movies that feel like AI could write, <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm not, I, I feel like they're so patterned and right. so predictable in some ways. Um, I, I don't well, know. They're also in large part, they're that way because they're, they're designed for a global audience. Yeah, exactly. And, and so you need to take a templatized story that's going to transcend, you know, cultures. Yeah. 
I think that's right. And, and that kind of storytelling doesn't particularly interest me very much. I have to say it really doesn't. So just based on the advertising around them though, I, it, it seems to me like there, there's more uh, female superheroes um, that are at least on offer for audiences. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I don't, I don't track of, you know, how, the, how successful those are versus say Captain America or Thor or Iron Man or anything of that nature. But um, it, it, am I wrong in thinking that, that, you know, that, that, that's a step towards some type of um, uh, more an equitable disbursement of who the lead protagonists might be? I guess it's a start, you know, I mean, I guess sometimes I feel so discouraged and maybe honestly a little angry at how slow the progress seems to be, you know, I mean, I just think that it still feels to me like we're in an era of tokenism, like, okay, well, we'll add in some women superheroes or we'll let these women direct or, you know, we'll, we'll nominate these women for awards. Um, I, I just, I don't feel like we have really opened up the, we, we haven't really gotten to the point where we can say things are really getting much better. I think mm -hmm. there are more opportunities for women's stories to be told. There's no doubt things have gotten better. I mean, when I was growing up, there was this perception in the movie industry, I think, that no boy would watch a story about a a girl or a, a you know or a female superhero, and and I don't that clearly is not true. I mean, Frozen, you know, there's so many stories that have been so so popular, right? Um, and I think that so we're not. It's not that it's not getting better. It's just that I want it to get better faster. <laughs> <laughs> Understood. <laughs> When I was when I was making my way through through your book, I kept thinking that um, I, I, you know, you go into great deal in, uh, detail about referencing certain films and and drawing out certain scenes and what and whatnot. And and I kept thinking to myself, I want to be seeing this as I'm reading this. Have you given any thought to, you know, maybe turning this into a series of sort of visual essays on like YouTube or even a, a, a documentary version of this film? I would rather. certainly be interested in exploring that idea. I mean, I think um, I think that would be great because it is true that you kind of want to see the scene and then you want to be able to talk about right. what is the scene doing, you know. Right. Um, it's an interesting and you're kind idea. of purposely provocative in the mm -hmm. sense that, you know, you're 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 not sort of putting the hammer down and saying this is the way things it are. Right. You're making right. observations. You're showing examples. Let's you know, you're opening up for for discussion. Right. I mean, I, I have a lot of, you know, like anyone probably have a lot of complex feelings about and ideas about this subject. And so. I, I'm not really presenting a right answer <laughs> or an answer. Right. I'm kind of more calling attention to um, how are these playing out and what is this saying about sex and consent and what do we do with this information or how do we feel about this? Do we think of this as consent? Why or why not? You know, um, really just trying to get at all of those, you know, complexities really. Yeah, I think in, in just a plug for another more contemporary film that just came out in the past couple of years. Um, I'm not sure if you've seen She Said. Mm -hmm. uh, I haven't you know, seen I, it. 
Oh, okay. I, I thought yeah. that worked really well in terms mm-hmm. of, um, you know, if you like the kind of in the weeds journalism, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, tracking down stories to, you know, based on the, the New York times journalists who broke the Harvey Weinstein, you know, story. And it, it, it tracks quite well with a lot of the, uh, the issues that, that, that you're bringing up. So once again, the film, uh, the book is consent culture in teen films. I'm, I think I definitely want this to be a documentary. I keep referring to it as a film, but right now it's a book. <laughs> it's, it's a book. Stage by Michelle one. It's offer for sale though. <laughs> okay. Reach out to me. <laughs> Reach out to we're, we're, we're accepting offers. Exactly. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Michelle, thank you for this time, for your time. It was great to catch up with you and best of luck with the book. And so for folks listening, obviously, I'm, I'm sure they can obtain the book through the usual uh, sources. But if they want to find out more about the book and more about you, where should we point them? Yeah, you can come to my website at michellemeek.com and it's M-I-C-H-E-L-E-M-E-E-K.com. Wonderful. All right. Well, again, thank you for your time and and best of luck uh, with the book. Thank you so much. 